Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. I'm joined by Margaret de yeah. Welcome, Mags. Hi. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. So, Mags, I like to talk about stereotypes a lot and busting the kind of stereotype myth that many of us carry around. And yeah. I think the stereotype I have an, of an actuary, you're about as far removed from that stereotype <laughs> As I can imagine. But tell us about becoming a, an actuary, Mags. Well, I mean, firstly, is it worth just setting out what actuaries do? Oh, because yeah, me. Quite, quite often, I'll people say to me, oh, what do you do? And I sort of dread that question. It's like, oh, how do I answer this? Um, <laughs> because if I say, oh, I'm an actuary, they'll either be quite polite. If they know what it is, great, brilliant, fabulous. Yeah, oh, that's great. Fab, you know, how's that? Is it interesting? If they don't know what it is, some people will say, oh, I don't know what that is. Or a lot of people just go, oh, nice, smile, and then say, oh, would you like a drink? Or, well, you know, <laughs> talk about the football or something else. Um, but anyway, so what do actuaries do? So actuaries make sense of the future. That's quite a broad definition. So effectively, we look at past data to put some sort of assumptions and um, parameters on future trends. And that is typically in economic economics and mortality, which has been very interesting recently with COVID. Um, because one of the things that actuaries have spent a lot of time doing and, and, and are in charge of, really, we've got the government's actuary department and the continuous mortality investigation, and they put together mortality tables. And these tables estimate how long people are going to live. And they're used by insurance companies, by pension schemes, and by various organisations. So the role that actuaries play is quite important but it's something that isn't high profile um it's we're more high profile now we've actually got a actuary's covid response group that was put together yes and uh, that group is really key in pulling together some of the statistics that you might have seen looking at you know deaths and what's happened and how deaths this year compared to last year and so on so they get really involved in that stuff so so actuaries are doing some pretty quite sexy exciting stuff um, that we're not, we're not on the TV very much and we're not really, you know, out there, but we're sat at our desks with our spreadsheets. Um, typically people, uh, actuaries are good at maths. A lot of them come from a maths background and we, we also get involved in economics and investments, which is um, what I spent a bit of my time doing in, in London. So I managed some money uh, at a company called Schroeder's and we looked after a couple of billion pounds worth of of assets for pension schemes and um, 
many many people listening to this probably in those schemes and uh, so yeah we've got a pretty pretty important role but you're right the stereotypical actuary used to be man in a suit sat there getting on with his maths probably not the life and soul of the party so that's the stereotype why we have that stereotype i don't know because i've met loads of really cool actuaries do you know what? It is a bit like accountants, but they're people. They're exactly. people at the end of the day. They've got a life. People don't just do that. They do other stuff. Um, and one of the things that I've found with, with the actors I've met, and I've, a lot of them, they're quite high achievers. They're quite focused. They do the most amazing stuff. So I know actors that have climbed Everest. I know actors that have run 20 marathons in 20 days. I, I know actors that have done amazing things. And so it, the irony is actually, they're probably more exciting than average. Um, <laughs> okay, let's get carried away here now. About it. <laughs> yeah, I don't shout about it. So um, anyway, so I don't think I, I am not a stereotypical actuary. I've even met a few of them. Yeah, um, no, it, I mean, it's <laughs> fair enough. I think, it, you know, stereotypes are nonsense anyway, and people are just people and we aren't what we do. Yeah. We are who we are. That's it. Yeah. So you started out in the big six at the time, I guess, Max. I joined Coops and Librands and, and I signed up to Coops and Librands but joined PwC. So um, that was literally the first week of my, my employment with them. But yeah, I'd, I'd done maths at university. I, I also do a lot of music and I wanted to go to music college. I wanted to be a, a clarinetist. I wanted to play an orchestra. Wow. But I wasn't, I wasn't quite good enough. I was sort of on the cusp of, of almost being, but not quite, and frustratingly spending quite a lot of my time um, working towards it. But in the end, decided that I was going to go off into the city instead, and on the basis that I could always afford to buy my clarinet reeds and new clarinet if I got a good job in um, finance. So that was my route into, into the city. And I joined, it was 1997. And yes, the world was a very different place. I remember, gosh, I don't feel old, but I feel old when I start talking about this. I remember no. having to get our letters typed out and printed in time for the post because we didn't have emails. And then we had, I mean, did we have spreadsheets? Of course we had spreadsheets, but not the power that we've got now. You know, handwritten calculations. Um, having to, to write out calculations by hand, give them to your um, manager to check, and they'd literally be ticking it like your homework. They'd send it back. And it was, that, it was a slower pace of work. It was, wasn't it? Much slower, but a lot more considered in some ways. Thorough. Thorough, yeah, absolutely. And, and I was lucky enough to work for, a, 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 I went into an amazing team at PwC, the actuarial team there, and uh, many of whom are still still with PwC and, and are good friends. And we were a really, really strong team and we did a lot of merger and acquisitions work. So supporting the rest of the biz, PwC business on transactions. So I was fortunate um, from day one, really, not to be sat at a desk doing spreadsheet work. I was out. At, clients and lawyers offices and going into data rooms and and 
helping um, some of the partners and senior managers do negotiations. So I was sort of thrown in at the deep end in some ways, but I really enjoyed that. And having had a, a background in music performance, I just absolutely um, thrived on the presentations and the being in the meetings and being in front of people and, and that side of it. And I think that kept me going. If I'd have been sat at a computer in an insurance company putting mortality tables together, I don't think I would have lasted. And I suppose there's also great variety in working for someone like PwC. You get exposure to different types of clients and... Yeah, yeah. it was wonderful. It was the different types of clients, the different um, disciplines. So I was working with people in tax, accountants, lawyers. It was fabulous. It really was. And also traveling. Mm. So I remember uh, I was sat at my desk one day and, and a PA came out and said, you always had, so you always had a drawer and in there would be your passport a change of underwear and a toothbrush. And this was just in case you were called away to a data room that was somewhere exotic. So the PA came out and she said, have any of the students got the passport with them today? And of course I'm like, me, 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 please pick me, pick me. And, and then it was like, okay, get your stuff together. Um, you need to get on the next Eurostar out to Paris, go and meet the team. They're out at the Scandinavian Arts office, I think it was. Um, do the deal oh and on the way can you buy six shirts for the partners because they're stuck out there and they can't get back so it was that sort of world of of just really sort of living the dream and then you'd get there and you'd be in this beautiful hotel and um you know going from being at university to sort of 12 months later that it was it was fabulous it really was and i just threw myself into it Totally. And, and what was there for almost 20 years, not, not just at PwC, but then at Deloitte's Traders, and, and really enjoyed my time in the city. Yeah. Amazing. And, I mean, it, you know, clearly like accountancy, actuarial, it, it's very technical, but there is, I guess there was a point in your career, or maybe you were always like this, where you saw people as just being as important to getting your job done as the technical side. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked out pretty early on that the the thing that I was that I had the edge in, or I, I had a gift, a gift of the gab. I don't know, <laughs> but but it, it became apparent pretty early on that that what I was better at was explaining the technical stuff as opposed to creating it myself and doing the numbers. So very quickly, I chose a route that enabled me to do more of the, the talking about the actuarial stuff than doing it. Um, and I mean, I, I could do the numbers and I can do the numbers, yeah. but that I wasn't, the, I wasn't the sharpest actuarial knife in the drawer. Yeah, there was some really, really very talented, smart mathematicians in the industry. And I was sort of, you know, on the cusp of, of I always felt like I was winging it, to be honest. I think many of us do, but I really yes. did sit there thinking, how am I here? What imposter syndrome? What on earth? How did I actually get here? Um, and when I qualified, I still sort of sat there and thought, really? I really done this? So yeah, I, I ended up doing a lot of the communication side. So presenting to clients and actually to members of pension schemes, which I, that's still my favourite thing to do. And I still do a lot of that now. Um, working with the members of the schemes and sitting down with them and explaining to them what what is going on in their pension. I find that so rewarding. And again, 
it's it's kept me in the industry if i didn't have that i think i might have have chosen to do do something else and it, do people understand their pensions i think people are becoming more and more engaged now people are realizing that they do need to save for a pension workplace pensions has changed things in that everyone who's employed is in a pension scheme unless they choose not to so that actively makes them think about whether they what whether they do want to opt out do people understand it not until the point that they have to mm. and sometimes that's too late it's no different to anything else diet exercise it's something that you invest in for your future and it's tricky to make the right choices i heard recently that if you put five pounds a day into your child's bank account from the day they're born till they're i think 16 or 18 then by the time they reach pension age there'll be a million quid in there and that's because of the impact of, of compact of compound interest so every time you put five in that five earns interest then you put another five in and that does and so on so that's a really good example of how engaging with pensions early on can make a huge difference but the reality is a lot of us don't and we get to 40 and think oh oh, I suppose I'd better think about that. So it's changing. Yeah, I was reading something recently where they said, if you simulate what you look like when you're 70 years of age, you're more likely to invest in your pension. Really? And, yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? That we, we can't, we find it very hard to picture ourselves being old and needing it but if we actually see an image of what we might look like then we feel for that person and we start yes. saving for them of course May, yeah that's it that's interesting i'll um maybe mention that to some of my clients and see, see if we can get some more engagement with with members it is true though that when we actually can see something we do value it more Mm. And there's that whole theory around if you go into a car showroom, they want you to get in the car because the minute you sit in it, suddenly it's more valuable to you and you're more likely to buy it. So it's a similar thing, isn't it? Saying if you can see what you will look like at that age, you're more likely to invest in that. Yeah. Uh, human psychology. Yeah. Yeah. I like what you say about diet or exercise as well, because it is about being sustainable, isn't it? It's it investing is. in your future now helps you live sustainably as long as you live. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it so sounds it, simple. Yeah. And inherently, pensions are simple. You put some money aside and you leave it there and then you draw on it when you need it later on. Yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> There's nothing more to it than that, really. And I think actually when it's coming out of your salary, it's so much easier as well, isn't it? Yeah. That, yeah, because yeah. then it's just happening and you don't have to consciously make that choice. That's right. That's yeah. right. And, and I think the, the problem some people have had with it is the perception that it isn't theirs. So it's been taken away from them. We've taken money out of your salary and we've put it somewhere. So people don't feel or haven't felt that they own it. And of course, of course you own it. It's your money. So I've, I've now got on my banking, I, I, I bank with Lloyd's and they own Scottish Widows. And when I go onto my online banking, I can now see my Scottish Widows pension. So oh, I've got my current account, I've got my savings account and I've got my pension, which is fabulous because that's my money. And I'm just like, great, there it is. 
And so initiatives like that are really helping people get to grips with the fact that a pension isn't your employer taking money away from you. It's actually you saving money. And um, that, that sort of stuff's great. The, yeah, because I have a self-invested pension plan. Mm-hmm. Um, a sip and like that I can see it all the time and I find that really helpful yes. and as you should I and this should be the case for all pension schemes and the government's working towards that with the the um, dashboard initiative where um, you're going to be able to effectively log on so as you log on to government gateway or whatever and then it would show you all of your pension schemes there you can do that with the state pension as well I don't think people realize this if you go on to I think it is gov gov.com and you can put your date of birth in and your national insurance number and it'll show you what your state pension is going to be wow i didn't know that no i know the the biggest issue with pensions has been communication and that's one of the reasons again that i felt so called to stay in the industry and work on that side of it because that's that's the area that, that needs most help really and so this is where your drive for speaking social media came from, or and media even. Yeah, so the media, it was an interesting one. So my dad's in TV, right? So I hold my hands up straight away. He is, is an amazing guy and he works, he works for ITV actually. And as a child, I used to go and meet him after work. And those were the days where I could go on set. And I remember doing my homework on the bar in the Rover that's waiting for him to finish work you know just like go and sit in their mags and crack on and I'd be <laughs> sat there you know just doing my work and um, so I was brought up in, in an environment where TV was sort of normal and we were very happy messing around at home filming each other and so on and obviously doing quite a lot of music and I did a bit of theatre at uni it wasn't something that I was sort of phased by and then I how did I get into doing the TV work goodness me I applied I got put forward actually so the BBC did a program probably about 10 years ago now and it was called expert women and they wanted to find at the time we used to call it like x factor for presenters but they wanted to find people who were specialists in their field but who could go on tv and and be professional because what people need really is you want to turn up on set you want to know what you're doing have a belt put your mic on the tv companies just don't want people who don't know what they're doing so i got put forward for this course and the short of it is i i basically um got shortlisted there was 10 of us out of how however many hundreds or thousands i don't know and we went off to white city and we we got trained up we did two days there did loads of amazing things like went on um one show we went on women's hour like loads of little things they just put us through our paces and then following that i i got called to go on um, various news channels and then that went on to sky because once people see you they go oh yeah right you're the pensions person and yeah it was lovely actually i did probably um about a year of doing a lot of of tv interviews and i thoroughly enjoyed it at the same time, I made a couple of little films as well. So that it started to um, expand. I did something about the history of mortality tables. And I made a little programme for BBC Daily Politics. <laughs> um, and it was great. It was brilliant. So that was the start of it. And then I had a career break, funnily enough. I left London about seven years ago, decided to move. And I had my, my 
um, twins who are now four. So I've got identical twins, two little wow. girls. Wow. Yeah. And I wasn't doing any TV at all. <laughs> I wasn't doing very much. I was doing work and fitting that around childcare, but all the TV had gone out the window. And it was quite frustrating because I get called up by Spotlight and they'd say, oh, can you come on and talk about pensions? And I'd have to say, well, I can't because obviously I can't get up at five in the morning, do my hair and makeup and turn up at a studio when I've got two little girls that mm. I need to look after. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't do very much. And then I was out at lunch with a good friend of mine, Lou, and she had also moved to Cornwall from London and her background was in TV and she used to work for MTV. So she had an amazing job where she used to go and interview pop stars and like totally the opposite end of the spectrum to me. <laughs> so, well, how was your TV experience? Oh, well, you know, I get absolutely grilled on daily politics about interest rates. And she'd be like, oh, I interviewed, interviewed um, Leonardo DiCaprio or something. Like, how was that? <laughs> But anyway, we met actually in, in a shop, bizarrely, but we, kept, we became great friends. And we said, oh, we, should we set, let's do some TV. And I also was friends with a, a lovely guy called Shane Solomon, who runs the Cornwall Channel. And he'd just done some videos for my partner. And he'd done a really good job of it. And I'd sort of sat there on the set, being a very probably annoying director stroke girlfriend, going, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this. Um, anyway. So Lou and I sat there and we were like, do you know what? Should we start a TV programme? Bonkers, totally bonkers. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll give Shane a ring and let's see if we can get in studio and let's see, see if we can get a chat show going. And we did. And so we've, Thinking Women has been going a year. We've had 50,000 views. Amazing. Show. I know, it's, it's crazy. And um, we've now got sponsors that are working with us and um, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I love it. It's just the best. It's one day a month we go into, into studio and we record it and it's just fab. And we've had musicians on there. We've got, uh, we're doing a cookery slot on the next show. So we've got a kitchen in the studio. So we're going to be doing, <laughs> doing the cooking thing. Um, it's great. Absolutely love it. Um, and I'm still obviously doing my pensions work and I'm doing some business coaching as well. So life has become quite a, quite a mix, really, a portfolio of different things, which is, which is great and fun. Well, I, I was chatting to somebody earlier today and I was saying to them, I mean, they're 22 or three and trying to plan ahead of what they want to do. And I said, well, variety is the secret to an interesting life. Yeah. And if you'd have asked me at 22, 23 what I wanted to do, I would have said I want to be a part, senior partner at PwC. Um, things change. I can't think of anything worse. No disrespect to the senior partner at PwC. But oh my goodness, no. I'm very happy. I think I've realised that I like, I love people. I like meeting lots of different people. And I like doing the communicating. It's a wonderful thing as you go through your career that you you learn what you're good at and one of the things I've been very lucky to have been able to have done is to choose the things that I'm good at and leave behind the things that I'm not so good at and have the the confidence to say do you know what actually that's not really my bag yeah please your strengths oh totally yeah absolutely yeah 
And but it's hard because when you're in these big organisations, they do put you on a programme and push you through. And I know when I, I was at my last job, proper job, before I started working for myself, um, <laughs> they were very keen for me to take a bigger role and be promoted. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And they said, well, what are you going to go and do? And I said, I don't know, but I don't want to do that. And it was almost, they, they were gobsmacked because how dare I turn down partnership at a large accounting firm? You know, that's just not what you do. But it wasn't right for me. And I knew that. And what I'm doing now is, is far more rewarding, much more rewarding. Uh, yeah, I think it's... <laughs> I suppose there's a there's a path, you know, a, a career ladder, and oftentimes people just follow it without pursuing that, what they're passionate about. Do you know, Susan, that's so true, and it's something that actually Lou and I were talking about the other day. The, this business of quite often we don't make choices in life; we just do what's put in front of us. And there is something about making active choices and really considering what it is that you want to do not what is easy to do and that is something that I really try and focus on in everything that I, I do and every decision I make you know, do I want to do that or am I doing it just because it's been put in front of me um, and again it's going back to food and drink and everything everything social and um, yeah life can be life can be more rewarding I think if you do start to choose and create create yes you know because yes. there's this choosing I think but there's there's also you can you can decide which direction you want to go in. you may not really know where what, what it's going to turn out like but you create it as you go that's it and it's 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 almost moving away from the plan and letting it just flow and be um and I, I talk to talk to clients about business plans and and I'll say right if you've got a business plan and they do or they don't and if they do it's like okay great and I'll say well how often do you update it and they say well I don't because this is the plan it's like well no no the point is the plan needs to change you've still got to have the plan but the plan needs to change if the plan hasn't changed then this is this is not flowing this is not right <laughs> So um, life's like that as well. The plan does need to change. I, mean, I never thought that I'd be a mum, ever, ever. To the point where I even, I even did an interview in the Daily Mail about, about not wanting children, um, and, which was hilarious at the time. But anyway, and I ended up having twins at 40. And people were gobsmacked. And I remember people saying, well, you know what? At least you're having twins with you. It wouldn't be one. You've got to have two. <laughs> Get it? Um, <laughs> And one of the things I am very grateful for is I do feel that I've sort of put my money where my mouth is in terms of moving out of London, showing that you can continue and work as a woman from home, fitting around your children. You do not need to be. And now with what's happened with COVID, a lot of people can't be in the office. But certainly when I left London seven years ago, and I told people that I was going to work for myself as an actuary from Cornwall. 
people looked at me and, and just I might as well have been saying that I was going to go to the moon yeah, can I imagine? <laughs> yeah so well that's just not going to work and I was scared I'll be honest I was scared but I thought do you know what if I don't if I don't do this how will my children or the next generation ever think anything apart from having to go to the city put on that blue suit from Marks and Spencer's that I hated. Oh my goodness mm. me! Like my office clothes. I used to spend money on these beautiful clothes. That I really just didn't like, but had to wear. And the thought that that, that I could get out of that and work from home. And as you, th- you see, I've got a bright orange jumper on today, and I've still got my city pearls on. I don't seem to be able to rid rid myself of those. But anyway, <laughs> the legacy the legacy remains. And the thought that I'd be able to work from from Cornwall and go for a run on the beach and take my kids we're going to climbing more later on today um, and and do things like that was unheard of you know you you just had to turn up in the city in your uncomfortable shoes go and get your coffee and sit at your desk and and get on and be grateful for your job be grateful for your job and if you do leave your desk I mean remember in one of the organizations I worked in there was a rule that if you left your desk, you had to put your jacket on. Oh, for God's sake. I know, I know. Isn't it crazy, actually? You know, just what you're talking about, the, the suits and, and that, like, rule. I mean, come it was on. Mad. And, and it, it didn't help anyone. I remember going to events and just seeing a sea of 40 and 50-year-old men in blue suits with ties that looked similar. And I'd have no idea who was who because there was no distinguishing feature and it's awful to say but I struggled and it was easier for us women because you could wear a red jacket or you could wear um a pair of shoes that were a different color but that was really it you know it wasn't much else that we could do but it it was it was a strange strange environment actually looking back and it wasn't very diverse at all it really wasn't and it's a joy now being able to to access so much more diversity online so the teams that i've been working with recently have been so much more diverse because just see even things like seeing into people's homes on a zoom meeting it tells you a bit about someone doesn't it it's like, doesn't it? yeah the person who's got this massive load of books and who'd thought that they there was i was on a zoom call the other day and someone had loads of model toys at the top of their book, bookshelf. And I was just so fascinated. I was like, wow, you know, this, this person has, has got this whole collection. And they've probably gone into the office for years and never mentioned it. Because we just yeah. don't. And you start to see people as people, as human yes. beings that have lives. Yeah. yeah. And it, it will start to burst stereotypes. That is right, absolutely, because there is no stereotype. And that is the point. I don't think there is a stereotype because when you actually get in, when you start to learn about people, we're all different, we're all unique. And we've all got our quirks. We've all got little things that we enjoy and do. Otherwise we wouldn't be human. And I think the only thing that's been wrong has been that we haven't been able to talk about ourselves and be ourselves. We're not. Um, different we've not been able to express those differences 
Yeah, but definitely in the in the 90s when I went into Deloitte, your personal and professional were two separate people. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you weren't encouraged to bring your whole self to work. Mm. Um, no, and I know. that's why you have a lot of miserable people in Absolutely. the world. I, I remember my first appraisal and um, I and I actually think that they were right in mentioning this, but I, I'm quite annoying. So I walk around and I sing to myself. And, um, this is just something that I've done and always done. And, and I was sat there in the office and, and at some point, I don't even remember doing it, but apparently I'd been singing to myself. It's probably hugely annoying to the people around me. Particularly, I was quite into musical theatre, so I was probably sat there singing Cats or something, um, very quietly, just to myself. So anyway, I got to my first appraisal and they'd done the 360 feedback and um, they said, right, we've got some feedback from our colleagues that we want to share with you. I was like, okay, right. And I was super keen to hear what it was because, of course, I'm like, right, tell me and then I'll fix it. I'll just be whatever you want me to be because I want to be promoted. Um, And that in itself was awful, wasn't it? I mean, it's like a method of control. Like, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. Just anything. And they said, yeah, you've got to stop singing in the office, Max. And I was sort of a bit horrified. It's like, really? So that means that I've got to come into this building for eight, nine hours. And actually, it was longer than that because we used to stay late. I mean, all nighters at times. Mm. Um, so I've got to come in here and I'm not allowed just to have a little, you know, sing song quietly to myself. And like, no, and... And I was like, oh, right, yeah, no, I get that. That's fine, yeah, fine, get it. But then fast forward 10 years and I was, and I look back now and I was, I think, we talk about controlling relationships and I think I was possibly in a controlling relationship with the city, not with any organisation in particular, not with any individual in particular, but with the, the institution of it. And it, it, yeah, it took a little while to undo that, I think. So I absolutely accept that it could be annoying. So um, if whoever it is is listening, I agree. (laughs) But I'm using it as an example of how now when I'm at home, I'll have the radio on and I can be writing reports and singing along. So I'm using it as an example of how being in in that city, for me, compromised me gradually over a long period of time. And by the time I came out, I wasn't me anymore. Yeah. Any situation that is bad for you in some way, if you if you keep going, mm-hmm. the day you step away and realize I am not myself, yeah. you can't believe how much of yourself you've allowed to be chipped away at. Oh, I know. I know. And I, I remember I left my job and I decided I was going to have a year off. And even that was terrifying because I didn't even have a gap year. I went straight from, from uni to work because that's what you did. You know, you, you got on and got on with it. So I hadn't done anything and, and I had this year off and I, I went and um, I was lucky enough to be able to stay in a friend's apartment in Newquay overlooking Fistral Beach. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn to surf like you do. <laughs> Because I thought, well, that's a challenge. Yeah, I've, I've, I can ski and I can, well, you know, I've, I've ticked a lot of those boxes. But surfing, yeah, that looks pretty, pretty tough. I'll give that a go. There's a bit of a theme here. If it's difficult, then I'm all over it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I picked up on that early on. <laughs> stuff, you know. So I thought, well, yeah, I'll give that a go. And um, 
I threw myself into it quite literally, <laughs> threw myself into the sea and spent a year just hanging out in, in Newquay and surfing. And, and interestingly, I didn't really talk about my time in the city. So when people ask me what I did, so I'd meet someone in the beach bar, like, what do you do? I'd say, oh, I'm just having some time out surfing. And of course, that's what everyone was doing. So suddenly I was part of this community of people that didn't really have a serious, like they, in, at the time I was thinking, oh, it's not a serious job. These people are, are, are wonderful and they work around the world in bars and restaurants. So they're very serious about what they do, but they're just not actuaries or accountants or lawyers. And um, I found it really, really bizarre being in that environment um, at that time. I still live around Newquay and now seven years on, I, I'm totally chilled out about it. And I walk around Waitrose in my flip-flops sometimes. And it's strange how I've now adapted back to myself. Whereas when I first came out of the city, I was just... Indoctrinated. So, so indoctrinated, yeah. But I mean, it, it's a wonderful place and I had a wonderful time. I, I'd never change it. And but it's being aware of what it, certainly what it was probably isn't now and yeah people, what feeds your soul well that's right yeah that's right mm, very cool and my uh we've talked about music and singing quite a bit but you were in the london philharmonic choir is that correct yeah i was so again um typical me i decided as i couldn't be a professional clarinetist that i would do a bit of singing and I've had singing lessons at school. I didn't think that I was a particularly amazing singer. But I thought, right, OK, well, I'll, I'll apply for the best choir in London. And if I don't get in, I'll then apply for the next best choir in London. <laughs> and we'll just work down until I find a choir that will have me. <laughs> so I went along to audition for the London Phil and I got in and I was absolutely gobsmacked. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I remember coming home to my husband at the time and just saying, I got in and he said what uh, so he said well what does that mean I said well I'm now in the London Philharmonic Chorus and I have to turn up four nights a week and rehearse and two weekends of the month and we've got 10 concerts in the next six months at the Royal Albert Hall and the Royal Festival Hall and and he was like oh right okay and you're going to do that and work I'm like yeah yeah I'm going to work full time and do this um and I did it for four years. Wow. It was fantastic and just wonderful. And I met the most amazing people I work with, the most amazing conductors. I was lucky enough to sing Berlioz Requiem with Sir Colin Davis in his final concert in St Paul's Cathedral. Wow. And because I'm quite short, they'd always put me at the front. So I always got a, a brilliant view and um, was quite often sat right behind the timpani or the brass section. And it was the next best thing to playing clarinet in an orchestra. And I did some wonderful things, worked with Catherine Jenkins, Russell Watson. I was in the Doctor Who prom, which was fabulous. And it was just, it was amazing. And when I left London, that was the thing that I was most sorry to leave behind. But I also accepted that I'd, I'd had four years of this amazing experience performing pretty much professionally in my spare time as a hobby and that I was just very blessed to have done that. So, Amazing. Um, yeah, it was, yes. And, and 
again, the lesson from that is never think you're reaching too high. If you want to do something, go for it. Go for what you actually want. Because what I wanted was to sing in the London Phil. I didn't want to sing in the Croydon local choir. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to sing in the London Phil. So I went and I auditioned, I turned up and I got in. And, um, and that was that. So, yeah, it's something that I, I sort of say to my little daughters as well. Do, do what you want. And if people think you're reaching too high, you know, that's their problem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's such a fascinating 40 minutes or whatever we've done, Mags. Really, really entertaining as well. How does someone connect with you? So I've, I've got a website, margaretdevalois.com, and you can find all my contact details on there. I'm on social media as well, so you can connect with me, me there. Always happy to hear from people who want to work with me. I'm doing some business coaching now which is great really fun because i'm getting involved in the wider bit of business as well as pensions still doing pensions work um or um yeah if anybody wants any advice mentoring or anything like that then let me know brilliant and thinking women where where can we find that okay thinking women is on facebook we've got a facebook page so thinking women tv we don't have a website we put it out via facebook and youtube so it's it's on there brilliant well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Susan. It's been amazing. I've really enjoyed it. It's Great. Absolutely fab. It's been a, a nice trip down memory lane, actually. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.